Well, I want to take this opportunity to say happy birthday, Mom. Today's her birthday, and she listens to my sermons. Because if your own mom won't listen to your sermons, you probably need to get a new job. As I was writing my sermon this week, I, on Friday, I, I flipped over to a news website to you know, catch up, and, and there was a story there that caught my eye. Apparently, last Thursday, uh, the pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, was barred from his pulpit by a local judge. And immediately you say, what? I mean, how can a judge keep a pastor from his church? Well, you should know it was the church that was seeking to have their pastor thrown out. You see, apparently in a couple of sermons a few weeks before, he had admitted to inappropriate physical relationships with women in the church while being HIV positive. Not only that, he confessed to taking illegal drugs. And so on October 5th, the church voted to fire him. The only problem is the church bylaws, which were passed actually last year, prohibits the church from firing the pastor. He'd been their pastor for 24 years, and the newly passed bylaws said he could uh, only stop being pastor by death or resignation. I'm thinking they were thinking of that first one. <laughs> so, so, so after the vote to dismiss him, he changed the locks on the church building and the names on the bank accounts. Dude, this is a perfect example of a pastor who does not meet the qualifications of a pastor. A perfect example of a church governing structure run amok. We find ourselves, you see, talking about the church, and I actually get to the introduction I wrote for the sermon. <laughs> I guess the question is, what church? You see, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary estimates that there are some 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. Oh my, which one to join? A denomination they define as a, an organized Christian group within a country. The center further suggested that all those 45,000 denominations can be grouped into six ecclesiastical cultural megablocks, whatever that is. But they listed them as follows, Roman Catholics, Protestants, Independents, Orthodox Anglicans, and unaffiliated Christians. I guess that's those who don't go um, to church. If I had time, I could give you the history behind uh, most, uh, most of those and bore you to tears. The center also estimates that there are 4.7 million individual congregations or, or churches around the world. <laughs> That's a lot. And, and there are lots of reasons for all those different denominations and all of those different churches, in some cases right across the street from each other, not the least of which is church government. How do we choose to govern ourselves? Last week I suggested the church governing structures can be grouped under the following four types. First, there's the Episcopal model, which uses a sort of hierarchy with a bishop as the presiding head over a local church or a group of local churches. Next is the Congregational model, which actually fits our U.S. Constitution and our democratic leanings. It sees the authority of a local church vested in its congregation. Everyone gets a vote. And, 
There's a sense in which that's probably good because if the governing authority like the pastor of Shiloh Baptist Church um, does what he does, the church does need to kind of throw him out. Third is the CEO senior pastor model, which intentionally or unintentionally lines up under a single charismatic, and by that I mean gregarious, um, leader. He's in charge and, and everybody knows it. And fourth is the Presbyterian model, which sees the responsibility for oversight and shepherding the church vested in a plurality, uh, that means more than one, elder. So, so again, last week we answered some very important questions. What kind of church government do we have here at Alliance? And the answer was and is a Presbyterian or an elder form of church leadership. Well, then what, what is an elder? What does he do? And we remember that there were three words or titles used of elders, an elder, an overseer, and a pastor, all one and the same. Uh, I suggested that an elder is a spiritual leader in the church who is responsible to oversee uh, the, the ministries of the church, uh, and, and as such, the, uh, I mean, and, and then he also shepherds um, the church. As such, the role of elder carries significant responsibility. Therefore, only qualified men should be selected for the task. Well, what are those then qualifications? That brings us back to 1 Timothy this morning. We remember that Paul is writing to Timothy with two specific purposes in mind to encourage Timothy since he had to deal with false teachers and then to tell us um, how we should conduct ourselves in the church. And, and I've suggested that those two are actually interrelated or connected. You see, most surmise that the false teachers had actually come from the elders. Those who were supposed to be overseeing and shepherding the flock were actually abusing and misleading the flock. Paul actually even named some of them, Hymenius and Alexander, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Uh, in fact, Paul we read, handed them over to Satan, which means he, he disciplined them and, and likely removed them uh, from the church. This was all in prophetic fulfillment of Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20. He, he told them, when I leave, savage wolves will come from your own number, from the elders, not sparing the flock. And, and they did. And so a little later, in a trip through Ephesus, Paul, after removing these guys, left Timothy to set things in order. Part of setting things in order would be the selection of new elders. They certainly needed to be better than the last ones. So, so Paul gives the qualifications of, of elders in 1 Timothy 3. We remember at this point, he's turned his attention to public worship, chapters 2 and, and chapter 3. I want men to pray rightly. I want women to dress rightly. I, I don't want women to teach or exercise authority in the gathered assembly. I, I want rather qualified men to lead. What then are those qualifications? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 tell us. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. A husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, 
freed from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach, into reproach and the snare of the devil. And now you may be sitting there <laughs> thinking, great, another sermon on elders. I got a little uh, secret for you. I'm actually going to do this again next week. Uh, you, you may be there sitting there thinking, I could have skipped last week and this week and, well, next week, uh, because this has absolutely nothing to do with me, which is not true for at least a couple of reasons. First, Paul is giving qualifications that we should look for in the men we choose to lead us. You see, you may remember from last week that there is a sort of, I suggested, a sort of three-step process for serving as an elder. Remember, ba back in Acts 20, Paul noted that the Holy Spirit had made these men overseers or elders. And we're not exactly sure what that looked like, but in some way, the Holy Spirit directed the appointment of these men to serve. It could be, in fact, it likely was that the Spirit directed Paul and, and Timothy and, and, and Titus as they appointed elders to serve in every church. The second step, and these are not necessarily chronological, but the, but the second is this. There is to be the affirmation of the church. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that elders meet these qualifications. It means that we have observed their lives and affirm that they are qualified to serve. That this does not mean that they are perfect. Of course not. But it does mean that the overall character of their lives is a pursuit of Christ seen in these qualities. Let me tell you how we affirm elders at Alliance. Elders here serve in a two-year term. And we, we typically have, in any given year, uh, about half of them, them coming up for reaffirmation. Uh, you see, they can continue to serve. They can serve beyond the two years. There are no term limits, but they have to be reaffirmed every two years by the congregation. So there is a sense in which the church does have a say. The church does have a vote, if you will, into who their leaders will be. See, every year, a nominating committee comprised of five people uh, meet to consider those who are indeed up for reaffirmation and, and to consider nominations which come from you, the church family, for, for a variety of positions uh, in the church, elders, deacons, and, and the like. And the, and the nominating committee then considers those coming up, considers those nominations, and presents a list of men to serve as elders to, to the congregation. Um, they, 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 they then vote for these men, and it's, a, it's an affirmation vote affirming that these men, in fact, meet, fit the qualifications set forth in, like, 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 5 and some other places. So, so, so hopefully, as we do this every year, as you vote, you are considering these qualifications. So in that sense, this passage does apply to you. You are able to say, if, 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 if someone is presented who does not meet the qualifications, you are able, 
as a church family to vote no, and I hope you do. By the way, here is a list of our current elders, j- just for, for, for you to know who they are. So the, the passage applies to us first because we as a church family affirm our elders. But second, I need you to pay very careful attention. Every one of these qualifications, except one, the ability to teach, every one of them is expected of every follower of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in the New Testament, all of us, for example, are called to be above reproach. We are all called to be committed to our marriage vows. We are all called to be temperate, prudent, respectable, respectable, etc., etc. So not only, not only should we listen with an ear toward our elders, go ahead and do that, but toward ourselves. You can measure your own spiritual lives against these qualifications because you're commanded elsewhere, do these things. Especially, especially if you ever desire the office of elder. You see, I suggested becoming an elder is a three-step process, which includes the call of the Spirit and the affirmation of the church, but third is the desire to serve. Let me address verse 1 very quickly. Paul says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The word aspires there speaks of Uh, It's a very unique word. It speaks of reaching out, of stretching yourself out for an office. Now, now, let me be clear. We are not talking about undue, prideful ambition. We are talking about, rather, the call of God on your life to serve in this position, this office. I mean, certainly, certainly men can and have had the wrong motivation to serve, you know, like for the power or, 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 or as a means to financial gain. I mean, come on. All you got to do is look in our country, and there are a lot of people that serve in so-called ministry for financial gain. We're going to talk about that in chapter 6. But here, Paul acknowledges that there is an aspiration, a desire to serve that is a good thing. In fact, he calls it a fine work that he desires to do, and indeed, I want to tell you, it is. There is nothing greater than the privilege of serving God's people in this way. Nothing greater than to serve God's people and to preserve the gospel. So it's a fine, that word could be translated noble task, but we must have these three things lined up in order to serve. So, so, for example, if a man is, once again, back at Alliance, is nominated to serve as an elder, I will call him to see if he would be willing to serve. The nominating committee has as much as is possible. Examine your life. You fit the qualifications. Will, will, will you serve? And if the man says no, for any variety of reasons, I'm too busy, I've got too much going on right now. My kids are too small. They demand a lot of attention. Work is particularly overwhelming right now. Whatever I say, typically I say, thank you for considering the nomination. I do not typically try to talk them into the role unless, of course, their name is Paul Branch. <laughs> Paul Branch has been serving for over 30 years here, and every once in a while he gets a while here and says, you know, this guy's been serving a long time, and so maybe I should make room for someone else, and I say, thanks, Paul, but... Uh, you, you, you can't resign here like, uh, unless you die. 
The, the point is, I, I don't typically uh, try to talk them into the role. I want them to have the desire placed by the Holy Spirit to serve. So, with all of that, what are the qualifications of an elder or an overseer or a pastor? Now, as we go through these, you are going to be tempted to think of the elders that you know, especially like, you know, Randy Riddle, um, and, and to measure them against these qualifications. And I want to say to you that that is okay. Do that. You see, we need to hold our elders to these qualifications. That is what Paul gives them here for us to do. And frankly, we have had occasion, even recently, where those who have served us in this way do not or have not met these qualifications. And the truth is, perhaps we as a body ignored that those qualifications were not met. And so I am graciously and gently and firmly calling us to not ignore, to graciously and gently but firmly hold each other, especially our elders. I'm asking you to hold us accountable, to be holy, not perfect, but holy. It's the overall pursuit of our lives. But don't stop with the elders. As I suggested, these qualities are urged upon us in, in the rest of Scripture. So as you understandably and rightly think of elders, think also of yourself. And let me divide these qualities into the following manageable chunks. In verse 2, we're going to see this morning the overriding qualification uh, the title, you could call it, is to be above reproach. And this is seen primarily within the church. Then we're, we're going to see some specific areas in, in which an elder should be above reproach, namely in his personal life, in his family life, and with respect to the faith. And then Paul is going to finish this all out with a similar overriding or overarching principle, namely that he is to be above reproach outside the church and that he has a good reputation. We don't want just Sunday Christians here. Now, I had a decision to make for today to try and cover all seven verses in one very long sermon or to cover them in two weeks, this week and next, in two shorter sermons. I chose, you'll be glad to know, the latter. So we're just going to look at the first couple of qualifications today, and I think you'll see why. First, the elder is to be above reproach. That word speaks of not being open to attack or criticism is the idea that the elder is irreproachable. In other words, the overall character of his life is one of blamelessness. Again, I'm not suggesting that he is perfect, but he knows the joy of sins forgiven and by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit pursues Christ-likeness in every area of his life. Listen, the really sad part of that story in Montgomery is that it made national news. That pastor is not above reproach, both inside and outside the church, so that the testimony of Jesus Christ and His gospel and His church has suffered. And I want to rem remind you that this is true of all of us. So overriding qualifications. Some suggest it's 
It's the title that Paul goes on to explain what, what he means by above reproach. I want you to notice that these are all qualities. He did, he, these are not duties. We talked about duties last week. Now we talk about the qualifications necessary to fulfill the duties. Notice also that these are observable qualities. We ought to be able to see these things. It's clear that the false teachers did not possess these observable qualities. They were bringing disrepute to the church. Not only that, Paul is giving, I think, qualifications for the selection of elders. You can't see unobservable qualities, but you can see these. And I'm going to suggest that these outward qualities are evidence of inward reality. Now, again, it does not matter um, who you are, church leader, ministry leader, elder, or believer. If you profess Christ and, listen to me, if you profess Christ and live an ungodly life, the testimony of the church suffers. This should not be above reproach. If, if people you work with, go to school with, live with, know you go to church, punch the Sunday time clock, but you live like the devil the rest of the week, the church and its testimony suffers. So what do people know about Christ who hang out with you, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your classmates? What do they know about Jesus from your lifestyle? Because you see, Christians, certainly church leaders, we're supposed to be above reproach for the glory and cause of Christ. Brings us to the first and perhaps the most challenging of the personal qualifications, at least most challenging to understand in verse 2. He is to be the husband of one wife. The, the first thing that I would note very gently is this obviously requires that the elder be a man if he is to be the husband of one wife. And, and this actually fits the argument from a couple of weeks ago. I suggested that the chapter division between chapter 2 and 3 is unfortunate. He, he's, he's talking about the gathered assembly. I, I, I want women to learn quietly and in submission. I don't allow them to teach or have authority uh, over a man. Instead, I want godly men to lead the church. And he spells out now what a godly man looks like. Above reproach, husband of one wife. What is that? As far as we'll get today, much to discuss. A literal translation of the phrase is the overseer, the elder, is to be a one-woman man. A one-woman, he's a man who only has one woman. Obviously, the pastor in Montgomery does not meet that qualification, and it is right for the church to get rid of him regardless of what the bylaws say, because the bylaws do not agree with the book. What does this one woman, man thing mean? There are basically, are you ready? You ready? There are basically five interpretations of this phrase. Now you know why I'm only getting to this. First, some say this means that an elder or a pastor must be married. He must be the husband of one wife. By the way, this is the teaching of the Eastern Orthodox Church. In order to be a priest in the Eastern Church, you've got to be married. While the Western Church, that is the Roman Catholic Church, says, well, a priest must be single. So which one is it? Well, 
Those who say that he must be married suggest that this is a carryover from the Sanhedrin in order to be a member of that Jewish ruling body, which were called elders, you had to be married. It's also noted that the false teachers were discouraging marriage, encouraging abstinence. They were thereby downplaying marriage, and Paul seeks to combat it by highlighting the value, the importance uh, of marriage. But is Paul here saying that you must be married to serve as an elder? A couple of problems with this. First, Paul himself was not married, and so there is a sense in which he would be disqualifying himself from leadership. Not only that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he seems to laud singleness. He holds singleness up as a high and lofty position. You see, the single person has the opportunity to devote more time and resources without the distractions of ministry, uh, or excuse me, without the distractions of marriage to the church, to ministry. So, so most rightly dismiss that particular interpretation. They rather see Paul saying, if you are married, then you need to be a one-woman man. Same way as in, in verse 5, uh, or excuse me, verse 4, he must keep his children. He's not demanding that he have more than one child. He's saying, if you do, then this must be true of you. Second interpretation then is, well, he can't be polygamous. That is, you can't have more than one wife while at a time. It's what we call simultaneous polygamy. And that would certainly be true, <laughs> just to be clear about this. You can't be a one-woman man and be married to two or more women. But, but, but polygamy was not an issue in the Roman world at this time. And it had actually started to fall out of favor uh, among, uh, with the Jews. And, and there is no evidence that polygamy was a problem in the early church. It would be like Paul prohibiting what no one did. Now, it is true that in the Roman church, or excuse me, in the Roman world, people did have mistresses on the side, and no doubt he's talking uh, about that practice. But he's not specifically talking about polygamy. But let me just be clear. Polygamy has never been God's plan for humanity, all right? I know people go to the Old Testament and they want to they point it out that, that all kinds of heroes of the faith in the Old Testament had more than one wife, so I can too. Listen, if you're going to go to the Old Testament, go back to creation. He created one man for one woman. He did not create Adam and Eve and Sally. For him to have Adam and for Adam to have a couple of wives, he created Ad, uh, Adam and Eve for him to have one wife who was his complementary companion and who fully completed him. And by the way, this was meant to be a permanent arrangement, one man to one woman for life. He did not again create Adam and Eve and Sally in case Eve didn't work out. Which leads actually to the third and fourth interpretations of the passage. And this, I'm just going to tell you right as we jump into it, might be a bit of a challenge for us. Uh, in the evangelical church, even at Alliance. I, I think we would all agree that an elder cannot be involved in simultaneous polygamy. That is having more than one wife at a time. I like move to Utah. But, what, but, what, but hey, but what about successive polygamy? That is, what about a man who has had more than one wife, not at the same time, but has had more than one wife? You see, there are actually two ways that this can happen, which form the third and fourth 
interpretations of the passage. Let me take the easier one first. Some say, since Paul talks about widows in chapter 5, that here he is talking about widowers. That is, a man cannot be an elder if he uh, married a second time after his first wife died. And you say, I mean, really? I mean, some people say that. What's the problem with that? Well, you need to understand that there was a big movement in the early church, a big movement that taught that very thing. You ever heard of a guy named Tertullian? He was a big proponent of this, who said, listen, you get married one time, and if your wife dies, if you want to be really, really godly, you stay single. You don't marry again. Lots of problems with that particular interpretation. First, in chapter 5, you need to follow along here. Uh, It gets a little bit technical, but just follow with me, all right? In chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. And in other words, words, Paul reverses the phrase from chapter 3. She's to be put on the list of widows if she was a one-man woman. Okay? But does this mean, this begs the question, does she mean, but does Paul mean that she was only married once or that she was committed to her husband when she was married, like both of them? after one died. You see, the passage goes on to talk about her qualifications as a widow to be put on the list of widows. And we're going to find, when we get to chapter 5, they're very similar to the qualifications in chapter 3. The point is, she is to be taken care of by the church if she has demonstrated a consistent Christian walk. And I am not sure that Paul is saying that she gets on the list if she is only married once. That is, she hasn't been a widow twice. Why do I say that? Well, well, Paul says, notice that she must be at least 60 to be on the list. What if she's not 60? What does Paul then encourage her to do? Get married again. We're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 5, but basically what he says in verse 14 is, I want younger widows to remarry so they can fulfill their responsibilities. Now, follow me. Why would he encourage a young widow to remarry if this would later prevent her from being taken care of by the church? That doesn't even make sense. Most reject this interpretation. Again, it was widely held in the early church. But I want to be very clear. Being a remarried widower does not disqualify you to serve as an elder. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that you are free to remarry if you want, if you're a widower. Okay? You with me? Now, this leads to a fourth commonly held interpretation of the passage. Woo, very difficult. This interpretation says... If a man is divorced and remarried, he is then disqualified from being an elder. Obviously, he has not been a one-woman man, right? This gets very complicated. You see, Jesus and Paul both seem to allow for divorce and remarriage under the following two conditions. First, 
If you are the innocent victim of a divorce, meaning your wife, and I'm talking about elders here, but it goes both ways. If your wife is unfaithful and leaves you for another man, then you are free to remarry. You say, where, where does Jesus say that? Well, he says, he who divorces his wife and marries another except for the cause of marital unfaithfulness commits adultery. So, if you get divorced for other reasons outside of your spouse being unfaithful and you marry another, Jesus says, not me, it's not Scott, Jesus says you commit adultery. However, if you get divorced because of marital unfaithfulness, this is the implication of Jesus' words, if you get divorced because of marital unfaithfulness on the part of your spouse, you are free to remarry. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul seems to allow for remarriage if your spouse leaves you because of your faith. Now, don't miss that. It's not because you don't get along, but because you came to faith in Christ and your spouse then rejected you because he or she rejects your Christ. If that happens... Paul suggests you are free to remarry. It gets very technical. We're not going to look at that now. We'll look at it when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, not going to get into it this morning. My question is, here's my question. Listen up. If Jesus and Paul allow for divorce and remarriage in the event, in the event that you are the innocent victim of the divorce, i.e. marital unfaithfulness or desertion because of your faith, why would Paul now say, well, but you are disqualified from serving as an elder? Here is another tricky part of the question. What if my divorce and remarriage was on unbiblical grounds, but before I was a Christian? Right? Everybody wants to know that one. They ask me that all the time. We didn't get along. We got divorced. I got remarried, then I got saved. Am I now disqualified from being an elder? Very difficult. <laughs> Jesus does not say, if you are my follower, get divorced and remarried. He simply says, he who divorces his wife and remarries without biblical grounds commits adultery. So he says, not only that, to argue that a pre-salvation experience does not disqualify you, but a post-salvation experience does, implies that there is more grace for the pre-salvation divorce than the post-salvation divorce. In other words, there are consequences for you if you get divorced after salvation, but not before. So if you're going to get divorced, get divorced first, then get saved. This whole thing is very challenging. Here's my take. Having studied the text, I do not think that Paul is talking about divorce and remarriage. I do think that there are challenges to unbiblical divorce and remarriage, whether it be pre- or post-salvation. It does imply that you have not been a one-woman man. I, I, I think that has implications. However, 
I do not think this is Paul's point here. I will go further. I will suggest for our consideration as a church that a man who has been the innocent victim of a divorce, right, unfaithfulness on the part of his wife, or she left him because of his newfound faith, those two things, if he is the innocent victim of a divorce, that he should not be disqualified to serve as an elder. What then is Paul's point here? The fifth interpretation is that a married man must be committed to his marriage vows. A man must be faithfully committed to his wife. I want you to think about this as we close. This has been a problem throughout all generations to the present day. Unfortunately, even among elders and pastors and overseers, men have not been faithful to their wives. And can I remind you, this call to be faithful is not just required of elders, but of all men who claim to be followers of Christ. Men, listen to me. Be faithful. But in this context, think of the, in this context, think of the untold damage done by elders or pastors who have been unfaithful, sexually immoral. It seems we hear like weekly of some pastor falling into sexual sin. And the testimony of Jesus Christ suffers. And I want to say that there are lots of ways to be unfaithful, not just in the act of adultery, but in the attitude of adultery. What do I mean? Jesus said to look at a woman with lust is to commit adultery in your heart. And so lust, men, lust, all forms of it. To include pornography is to be unfaithful. It is to be unfaithful. That's what Jesus said. I cannot tell you how many women that I have talked to have, who have felt violated, their husbands unfaithful because of pornography. So I very simply close with this sobering command. Elders, men, we must be one woman men. Faithful to our marriage vows faithful to our wives. Stand for prayer. Father, I, I, I do believe that this list is, is meant to be a bit revealing. It's, it's meant to be a bit sobering. It's meant to be a bit serious. We call ourselves followers of Christ we should then seek to be above reproach. Not perfect, but above reproach. Our lives characterized by a pursuit of godliness, a pursuit of righteousness, a pursuit of Christ. And we should, as men, elders and men, set the example of being faithful to our marriage vows. Help us to do that, I pray in Christ's name.